Neva College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. Wednesday afternoon, November 24, 1971. Thanksgiving Day minus one. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, Considering the Archaeology of the New Testament. Page 60 of Blakelock's book at question 53. The question of whether in all of the recorded sayings of Jesus that we have in the Bible, there is anything that indicates a consciousness of sin. What about that, Mr. Bay? Is there? Jesus ever say anything that sounded like a confession of sin? No. Did he ever take anything back when he once said it? No. St. Augustine, a great Christian, of course, and wrote many books, before he died, published two volumes of retractations come at the end of his published work today. Matters on which he had changed his mind or his view, and he wanted this on the record before he died. He truly a great man. He valued the truth more than his own reputation for consistency. But Jesus never took anything back. He never spoke hesitantly. He was never tentative. I heard a fellow say, I think, about 50 times in a student sermon, but Jesus never said that. He said, verily, verily, I say unto you with the utmost confidence. So much so that uh, if he were not what he claimed to be, the Son of God, people would say he was uh, arrogant and proud and conceited and so forth. Now, one of these sayings found in the so-called Gospel of Thomas is quoted here, I have glorified you upon the earth. And then they said to him, Come and let us pray today and let us fast. Jesus said, which then is the sin that I have committed or in which I have been vanquished? The point being here, of course, that uh, a sinless being does not need to fast. What have I done? What sin do I need to show my repentance for by fasting? This could be a uh, somewhat variant uh, repetition of that saying, which of you convinces me of sin, which is found, of course, in the Bible itself. And another saying in the Gospel of Thomas, become passers-by. Um, this, um, as Blakelock says, does not commend the attitude of the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan. They were passers-by. That's the kind of passers-by to be. You see somebody in need and you collect your silk skirt about your legs and go across on the other side of the street and say... Um, I stay today. I don't see anybody lying in the road. Now, this is surely not what that saying would mean, but rather as the saying found on the uh, gateway of the Mohammedan mosque in India, life is a bridge. You pass over it, but build no houses on it. Become passers-by. I heard of a modern Christian leader who said that we ought to ride and sit light in the saddle not be so uh, desperately involved in this world's affairs that uh, we simply can't leave when God calls us. But to be ready to go when the call of God comes, to be servants of God in this world, but to, not to such an extent that our heart is tied up in it, we should sit light in the saddle and what we have and what we do, we should be willing to uh, and ready to give up when the call of God comes. I wonder, would that, uh, Mr. James, be an easy thing to do, do you think? No, Mr. 
think so. If you become enthused in something, I heard of somebody who said something like this. And so the second coming of Christ. Oh, well, let's pray that it won't happen until I graduate from college. Now, uh, obviously, eternity is more important than anything in time. It always has a priority in the scale of importance and values. And we may not wish for eternity to be postponed in order that time can continue longer. Uh, these things have to be left in the hands of God. Now, uh, Bekos says all these things, that is, these ones quoted here on that page, have the ring of authenticity, and also the words of the new beatitude, Blessed is the man who suffers, he finds life. Is this in the Bible? Uh, not in those words. Well, I wonder, Mr. Dennison, would you say the sentiment of that is biblical? Could you support that by other places in the Bible? Yeah. Paul said that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And in um, Corinthians, was it after ye have suffered a while, the God of grace is it to establish strength and settle you. So this idea that suffering is temporary and leads to uh, eternal benefit and glory is, is a biblical idea, although that exact statement, blessed is the man who suffers, he finds life, is not found. Then there's this statement about the dog in the manger, about the Pharisees. Woe to them, for they are like a dog sleeping in the manger of oxen, for neither does he eat or allow the oxen to eat. Uh, is there anything like that in the recorded uh, sayings of Jesus in the canonical gospel? Well, I can think of one. I can't give you a chapter and verse, but you find it easily. Well unto them, for they shut the door of knowledge against men, neither do they enter in, and those that would they hinder from entering in. Speaking of the whole um, exclusive and domineering attitude of the Jewish scribes. Uh, Blakelock says here the, the figure of the dog in the manger is not originally biblical but Greek but uh, obviously the idea is applicable anywhere in the world and especially in Palestine where dogs were not nice pets but half wild animals they were the city's garbage collection system and pretty furious and uh, they were considered uh, dirty and, and practically wild animals now next we have here something about the parable of the sower. This is found, I believe, in... Um, this is the only parable of Jesus found in all four Gospels. Is that right? I think that's correct. The only parable found in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The parable of the sower who went out to sow. <clears throat> One kind of seed that fell on four kinds of ground and with four degrees of harvest or no harvest. The parable of the sower. And here we find from um, this uh, papyrus collection, dated about or from this uh, Gospel of Thomas, this alleged Gospel of Thomas, 140 A.D., half a century, he says, after the New Testament canon was closed and completed, a variant of the parable of the sower. And very obviously a report of the same utterance of Jesus, but varying slightly. See, the sower went out, he filled his hand, he threw, some seed fell on the road, the birds came, 
They gathered them. Others fell on the rock and did not strike root in the earth. They did not produce ears. Others fell on the thorns. They choked the seed and the worm ate them. And others fell on the good earth and brought forth good fruit. It bore sixty per measure and one hundred and twenty per measure. Uh, Blakelock says, reflecting the uh, Semitic way of counting by sixties instead of the decimal system. We have a reflection of that in the uh, use of a score and a gross. A gross is twelve twelves and a score is twenty. Is that right? And the three, three score you see be sixty. Well, this is, uh, that is obviously a, um, a tradition perhaps not guarded by divine inspiration, but um, a tradition of an authentic saying of Jesus. And last of all, the ones here about the woman with the jar full of meal or flour, which had a hole or it broke, got a big gap in it, and she went on not realizing that it was broken, and when she got home, all she had was a broken jar and no flour. I remember when I was a small kid in northern Pennsylvania, we had a village halfway. A pitiable case, and the boys in town had no mercy on him. They, his one pleasure in life was to smoke a pipe. They would fill his pipe for him, half full of matchheads, and then put tobacco on top of that. He would smoke it. When it got down to the matchheads, it would fizzle like a firecracker almost, but he would start to swear. But people took advantage of this poor guy. His name was Bill Wheeler. And they took advantage of him, sent him a mile down the road to the chicken feed store to get a sack of things for chicken feed on a wheelbarrow. He didn't know any better than to do it when somebody told him to. And he came back from the feed store with a sack of chicken feed, 100 pounds, you know, a great big sack, burlap sack, and part of it was sticking over the front end of the wheelbarrow and running on the wheel. And before he got to halfway home, it was coming out of there generously, and he paid no attention to this at all. Remember, he was a halfwit. And when he got clear back to where he was to deliver this over to the people that sent him on this errand, about half of it at least was gone. And the chickens of the town following along, <laughs> getting the benefit of his handout. I think it served them right for taking advantage of a, of a fellow like that in that way. But that, that is something similar to this story here. And um, this is not a contradiction anything in the... New Testament that I know of, but in the Old Testament it speaks of people scorning the living water that God provides and hewing the mouth cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Cisterns with cracks. People of Israel learned that by hard and long experience you can't repair a cracked cistern to make it watertight and depend on it. It's easier to dig out a new one. The old ones are not dependable even when repaired broken cisterns, and this refers, of course, to a religion without the saving grace and power of God in it, the rival religions, the uh, counterfeit and pagan and semi-pagan faiths that the people of Israel seem to have such a end for, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And uh, here, uh, uh, Blakelock has a moral drawn to this story. To carry the bread of life in a modern container is a fine idea. But we must first be sure that the container is such that the contents are not lost. Now, this is a dig at people like Bultmann and Bishop Robinson, who wrote Honest to God and Altizer and the Death of God Theology, and this kind of people who say that we must restate the gospel so that it speaks to modern man. 
put it in a modern container. He says, this is a fine idea, but be careful that in doing this you don't lose the gospel out and give them only the container. What good is a broken jar with the flour all gone? And uh, I'm afraid this is what uh, these people do. They, uh, it's one thing to state uh, the gospel in language that modern man can understand, and it's another thing to restate it in such a way that it isn't the gospel anymore. Dr. Benjamin B. Warfield, whom I honor highly, now did quite a few years, but lived up the street from where I was raised, he said in one of his reviews of a book, um, to restate Christianity in terms of modern thought cannot be rightly objected to. Every age has a language of its own and can speak no other. Mischief only comes when, under guise of stating Christianity in terms of modern thought, what people really do is to restate modern thought in terms of Christian belief. Now, you see, that's where the damage comes. When the real content is not Christianity, but uh, existentialism or something like this, and they just use a certain amount of Christian trappings and speak about the atonement or the resurrection or the deity of Christ or the virgin birth or something like this. But the real message is that of modern, non-Christian or secular philosophy with some Christian trimmings on it. This is damage to, to state real Christian belief. Well, I'll tell you somebody who does this. C.S. Lewis does this. He can state real Christian belief in terms that gets under the skin of modern people. And there are others that can do it. This isn't easy, but it can be done. And to speak to modern people, modern intellectuals, in such a way that, um, that uh, the message gets through to them. This is commendable in the service to God, but be careful that what we're doing is not stating modern thought with a little dressing and thrusting out of Christian belief. That is damaging. Now, any comments on that chapter before we go on from there? All right, archaeology and the death of Christ. Now, I was um, asked to write an article on Pontius Pilate by Professor Merrill Tenney of Wigan College for publication in Zondervan's new Bible encyclopedia. I wrote this about three years ago, and it hasn't come out yet, but it's going to come out soon. And um, this is to be published in Zondervan's Bible Encyclopedia in printed form. I will risk violating their copyright. They paid me for writing this. I'll risk violating their copyright by reading this to you. In addition to what we have on Pilate in the book here. Pontius Pilate. Pilate, the Latin form of the name. Pontius Pilatus in Greek. Meaning is uncertain. Pontius may be connected with bridge or fist. Pilate may mean armed with a javelin. They refer to the pilus or felt cap emblem of a freed slave. The Roman procurator of Judea who sentenced Jesus to death by crucifixion. All four canonical gospels say something about Pilate. The fourth gospel is especially revealing concerning his character and philosophy of life. Outside of the New Testament, nearly all of our information comes from two sources, Josephus and Philo of Alexandria. Of these, Josephus is by far the fuller and more reliable, Philo being obviously strongly prejudiced against Pilate and therefore unable to write of him with due objectivity. Besides these, in 1961, a stone tablet was discovered at Caesarea, that's mentioned in Blakelock's book, uh, bearing the Latin names Pontius Pilatus and Tiberius, thus affording archaeological proof of Pilate's historical reality. Summary of Pilate's life. Pilate was a Roman citizen, probably born in Italy, 
The date and place of his birth are unknown. It is unlikely that he was born later than the year 1 B.C. He was married. His wife was mentioned in Matthew 27:19. Whether he had any children is unknown. A member of the equestrian or middle class of Romans, he may possibly have inherited a rather large amount of wealth necessary to qualify him for this status. His career prior to becoming procurator of Judea is unknown. Uh, <clears throat> but he must certainly have held a series of civil and or military appointments before he could become procurator of a province. Pilate was the fifth Roman procurator of Judea, appointed about A.D. 26 by the emperor Tiberius to replace Valerius Gratus. You don't need to write this all down unless you feel like writing something down. He brought his wife to Judea with him, an act made possible by a recent policy change on the part of the Roman government, which had regarded Judea as a dangerous area. Pilate's area of jurisdiction was Judea, the former kingdom of Archelaus, and Samaria. Samaria and the area south of it as far as Gaza and the Dead Sea. His functions combined military with administrative responsibilities. And his immediate superior was the Roman governor of Syria, but uh, the price, the precise nature of the relationship is unknown. Pilate's authority over all persons in his area except Roman citizens was virtually absolute. On the other hand, the Jews were granted the degree of liberty and self-government. The Sanhedrin at Jerusalem possessed various judicial functions, but death sentences could not be carried out until confirmed by the Roman procurator. Because of political and religious problems, Judea was, from the Roman point of view, a difficult province to govern. Pilate outraged the Jews by sending soldiers into Jerusalem with Roman military standards, bearing emblems which the Jews regarded as idolatrous. This had been attempted before, and the Jewish opposition was so strong that the Roman authorities thereafter removed the offensive insignia from standards which were carried into the city of Jerusalem. When Pilate ventured to reverse this policy, he met with determined Jewish resistance, which he sought to overcome by threatening to kill the objectors. Finding them adamant in their opposition and not afraid to die, Pilate finally had to yield the point. This affair manifested poor judgment, stubbornness, and finally weakness on Pilate's part. Pilate further outraged the Jews by appropriating the Corban money or religious contributions from the temple treasury to finance the construction of an aqueduct some 20 miles, 25 miles in length to bring water to Jerusalem from the highlands to the south of the city. The Jews considered this action to be sacrilegious and reacted violently. In the rioting which followed, many of the rioters were killed by Pilate's soldiers. This may have been the connection of the atrocity mentioned in Luke 13, 1 and 2, those whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. Philo of Alexandria, quoting Agrippa I, says of Pilate in the Legatio at Gaeum, the Jews, quote, exasperated Pilate to the greatest possible degree. <clears throat> and as he feared this, they might go on an embassy to the emperor and might impeach him with respect to other particulars of his government. His corruptions, his acts of insolence, his rapine, his habit of insulting people, his cruelty, his continual murders of people, untried and uncondemned, and his never-ending, gratuitous, and most grievous inhumanity. End of quote. This appraisal of Pilate must be regarded as grossly exaggerated as shown by the much more moderate tone of the statements about Pilate in the New Testament. 
Also, the fact that he was able to continue in office as procurator of Judea for ten years would seem to indicate the extreme bias of Philo's words. Pilate's political ruin finally came about through his own folly. A Samaritan put forth the claim that he knew where Moses had hidden golden objects pertaining to the tabernacle on the top of Mount Gerizim. This claim proceeded from ignorance as well as from fanaticism. Why could Moses not have hidden any golden objects on the top of Mount Gerizim? Which side of Jordan River is Mount Gerizim on? West side. Which side did Moses die on? East side. All right. So this fellow didn't know his stuff. Uh, he didn't know his, his Old Testament. This claim proceeded from ignorance as well as fanaticism, for Moses had in fact never crossed the Jordan and thus could not have visited Mount Gerizim. However, a large assembly of Samaritans gathered at the base of the mountain intending to climb to the summit to search for the alleged treasure. Foolishly, they were armed with weapons, which Pilate interpreted as a threatened insurrection. Many of the Samaritans were killed by Pilate's soldiers. As a matter of fact, the Mount Gerizim affair was a mere passing delusion, and certainly no real threat to Roman rule in Palestine. Pilate had so many people killed that the Samaritans filed a complaint with Pilate's superior, Vitellius, the Roman governor of Syria. Vitellius deposed Pilate as procurator of Judea and ordered him to report to Rome for the judgment of the emperor on his rash conduct in the Gerizim affair. Thus ended Pilate's ten years as procurator of Judea. The Roman emperor Tiberius died A.D. 37, before Pilate's arrival at Rome. Apparently, Pilate escaped trial by reason of the emperor's death. All accounts of Pilate after his arrival at Rome are of late date and are considered doubtful or legendary by historians. The commonest story is he was banished to the city of Vienne in Gaul and eventually committed suicide. This is found in Eusebius, church historian. Uh, according to a different story, Pilate was beheaded by order of Tiberius but repented before his execution. The spurious book, Acta Pilati, Acts of Pilate, dating from the 4th or perhaps even the 5th century after Christ, clears Pilate of all blame and even represents him as confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. There are other books entitled Acta Pilati, Extent, which differ among themselves and all of which are spurious. One legend has it that Pilate's wife became a Christian. The Coptic Church in Africa is said to observe June 25 as the day honoring Pilate as a saint and martyr. This idea lacks any real historical basis. It is much more likely that Pilate committed suicide, but this also cannot be proved. Third, Pilate and the trial and death of Jesus. All the four Gospels are relevant here, but that of John especially so. The external facts of Pilate's connection with the trial and death of Jesus are as follows. First, the Jewish Sanhedrin had judged Jesus worthy of death, Mark 14:64. Second, Jesus was bound and turned over to Pilate, Mark 15.1. Third, Pilate asked the Jews what accusation they brought against Jesus, John 18.29. Fourth, Pilate told the Jews to take Jesus and judge him according to their law, John 18.31, but they replied they lacked authority to carry out a death sentence. Fifth, Pilate questioned Jesus about his claim to be a king, Jesus admitted that he was a king, but not of this world. Mark 15, 2, John 18, 33-38. Six, Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. Jesus was sent back by Herod. Luke 23, 6-12. Seven, Pilate's wife sent him a warning message. Matthew 29, 27, 19. Eight, Pilate 
proposed releasing Jesus, but the multitude clamored for Barabbas, Mark 15, 9-11, and John 18, 39-40. 9. Pilate publicly washed his hands with water in a futile gesture of disclaiming responsibility, Matthew 27, 24. 10. Pilate had Jesus scourged, John 19, 11. Pilate attested Jesus' innocency, quote, I find no crime in him, unquote, John 19:4. 12. Pilate said, Behold the man, or here is the man. John 19.5. 13. Pilate again attested Jesus' innocency. John 19.6. 14. Pilate spoke with Jesus again about his power to crucify or release him, and Jesus replied. That's in John 19.10 and 11. 15. Pilate again sought to release Jesus, but by told, was told by the Jews this would be an offense against Caesar. John 19.12. 16. Pilate brought Jesus before the people and said, Here is your king. John 19.14. 17. The Jews disclaimed having any king but Caesar and repeated their demand that Jesus be crucified. John 19.15. 18. Pilate sentenced Jesus to be crucified. John 19.16. 19. Pilate erected a title over Jesus' cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. John 19.19. 20. Pilate refused to grant the Jews' request that the wording of the title be changed. John 19. 21 and 22. 21. Pilate granted Joseph of Arimathea the body of Jesus. John 19.38. 22. And last, Pilate granted the Jews permission to seal and guard the tomb of Jesus. Matthew 27.62-66. The character of Pilate. The New Testament record portrays Pilate as a cynical, skeptical, a hard-headed Roman, but lacking the traditional Roman virtues of honor, justice, and integrity. Pilate was a dealer in compromise and expediency rather than a maintainer of justice. His cynical question, what is truth, John 18.38, essentially a brush-off rather than an inquiry, gives the keynote of his character. Pilate knew Jesus to be innocent, and he knew that the Jews were motivated by hatred and envy in their demand that Jesus be put to death. He sought to release Jesus, but only if it could be done without adverse effect on himself. His yielding to the popular clamor and pressure in sentencing Jesus to be crucified shows that he was not fit to be a judge, even according to the Roman ideal, Fiat Justitia Rulat Quellum, who is a Latin student who can translate that. Fiat Justitia Rulat Quellum. You say Latin? Well, that means let justice be done, though the heavens fall. Let justice be done, though the heavens fall. Far less according to the ideal of justice set forth in the sacred scriptures. Pilate could, by a brief command of half a dozen words, have prevented the soldiers from mocking and torturing Jesus, who was already in terrible pain from the scourging, but he did not. This callousness to human suffering was perhaps common among Roman provincial officials. Yet Pilate impresses us as exceptionally and shockingly callous. The faults and weaknesses of Pilate were those of a sinful, unredeemed, or natural man, whose position in life exposed him to great and serious temptations and made it possible for him to yield to them without being called to account over a period of several years. It has been said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Pilate's power, while not actually absolute, was virtually absolute as far as his relations with the non-Roman population of his territory were concerned. He had the power of life and death over the people. It was only at long last, following the most outrageous abuse of power, 
that he was finally deposed and ordered to Rome to answer for his deeds, followed by a bibliography. Well, that's that on pilot. Now then, uh, you notice in your book, uh, I think we meant I mentioned this, Easter is a mistake on page 65. This certainly should be uh, the day before the Passover, John 19.13. And uh, as Beckwach says, Pilate left no words of his own beyond what are recorded in the Bible there, so we have to get an opinion of him from other sources. And uh, on page 66 is this... Uh, Quotation from Josephus, uh, telling how the Jews on a previous occasion had uh, had succeeded in getting the Roman standards removed. They went to Caesarea, the Roman capital of Palestine, and he was going to uh, have them put to death, and they just lay on the ground and uncovered their necks and said, "All right, we're ready to die for our faith." And uh, a great crowd, hundreds. And um, this impressed Pilate. He didn't know how to deal with people like that. And so he finally gave the order for the standards to be removed. And this incident, Blakelock says, taught the Jews that Pilate could be bent. He uh, could be gotten to change his mind. He was uh, a coward and arrogant. And uh, at a certain point, you could pressure him into changing what he had decreed. Now, uh, that was uh, one matter. Then there's this matter here of the gilded votive shields in the temple, or in Herod's palace, rather, dedicated to the emperor Tiberius. This, again, was an act that uh, needlessly outraged the Jews. Uh, you could say he studied uh, not how to win friends and influence people, but how to lose friends and outrage people, how to insult them every way he could. And, of course, this matter of the aqueduct paid for by money out of the treasury. Now, how would you like it if you would pay money into your church to support the cause of the gospel and Governor Schaap would uh, raid the treasury of your church and use it to, uh, let's say, build an airport at Scranton or somewhere? Uh, you would consider this, uh, let's say, a misuse of funds, to say the least. Pilate did it, you see, and he got away with it. There was no authority in Judea that could say no to this. Wasn't right, but he did it anyhow. And this made the Jews extremely angry about this. And uh, there was also this matter mentioned in the Bible about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingles with their sacrifices. What would make anybody do a thing like that? That's an insult to their religion as well as a, a massacre or a murder. This would be like if the uh, alleged perpetrators of the Milai massacre had first marched all those old people, women and kids to the nearest Buddhist temple and lit up incense to Buddha and then shot them in front of that, uh, insulting their religion at the same time that uh, they were being murdered. Now, um, the question here about who appointed Pilate. He was appointed, yes, Mr. Nair. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, it was in Jerusalem. That was the trouble. Uh, they considered Jerusalem, not only the temple, but Jerusalem was the city of the great king and the city of God. And that would have been even worse than the temple. But they considered this, uh, anything like this, which they considered idolatrous, 
was an insult to their faith if it was in the holy city of Jerusalem. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses won't salute the American flag. I am willing to salute the American flag. I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. The Supreme Court has said they cannot be forced to do this. If it's against their conscience, this must be respected. And I would say the Jews were needlessly um, demanding about this and that uh, they carried this opposition to idolatry to the point of superstition, but still, after all, it was their faith and their conscience. Pilate was, was contradicting this. You see, and after all, Jerusalem was their city, and um, so even though we could say they had drawn this out kind of kind of thin, still, um, in the first place, it was very foolish of him to act contrary to this. What did he gain by just to outrage these people in this way? And as the, the thing I read to you pointed out, it was an outrage of this kind that finally brought about his downfall. He went too far, and. Uh, governor of Syria said he's had it sent him back to Rome but um, this uh, attitude of the Jews you see look in the Old Testament the Jews were always falling into idolatry this is a main subject of the Old Testament down to the Babylonian captivity the, the, the endless campaign against false gods in favor of monotheism then the Babylonian captivity cured the Jews of idolatry after that they became um, strict and severe monotheists, almost fanatically so. Now they bend over backwards the other way. Things that, uh, like an image on a coin or something like this, that wouldn't bother us, we wouldn't give it a second thought, but they considered it idolatrous. This commandment, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything. They took that literally and applied it universally. So it outraged their somewhat stretched conscience. And that was a foolish thing for Pilate to do. If you're going to be a governor of a country like that, well, obviously you should avoid needlessly uh, outraging or offending those people in the same way missionaries should. If you're going to go and be a missionary to the Jews, don't let them see you eating a ham sandwich. Uh, Not that it's wrong for you to eat a ham sandwich, but they think it's wrong, and this will uh, interfere with the influence of your Christian witness to them. Do you like ham sandwiches, Mr. James? I've heard that Jewish young people in this country, well, this is in the south part of Philadelphia, where there's a heavy Jewish population, Jewish young people wishing to show their rebellion against the restrictions of the faith of their Jewish forefathers will conspicuously, out on a street corner, the people to watch buy and eat a ham sandwich. Not that they care so much about the ham sandwich, which is like ringing the Liberty Bell. <laughs> Declaration of Independence from those very strict Jews. And of course, many Jews today eat what they please. Many Jews uh, consider these dietary laws more or less outmoded or optional, although the strict ones are very strict about it. Well, uh, that answer your question about the, uh, the gold shield, the gilded shield. Now, uh, a number of Roman coins here. These governors were allowed to put out uh, minor coins. Coins, uh, gold coins and silver came from higher up, but the governor of Judea could put out the copper coins for the small change. And there's a picture there on page 69 of one bearing the that curved thing. It looks like a sort of an umbrella handle or something on there. Wittuist or pagan priest's staff. Now, why on earth did he have to put that on there? This is testimony. This coin still exists today. 
Here is something which to the Jews was an offense that uh, was a feature of a pagan religion. And he puts this out, this money they can't help but using. Everybody's got it in their pocket. It's a common small change of daily business. And um, there it is. Pilate did this. And also, of course, there was the, uh, the coin with the image of Caesar on it that uh, was shown to Jesus when they had it was lawful to pay tribute unto Caesar. Now, Caesarea. This is the place on the coast. What is there at Caesarea today? If you would go there, what would you find? Well, uh, the Republic of Israel is digging it out of the sand to try to find it. What was Caesarea in Jesus' day and in Paul's day? Mr. Johnson? It was a port city and it was the Roman capital of Palestine. Jerusalem was not. Paul was sent on one occasion from Jerusalem to Caesarea, again sent to higher headquarters. And uh, this was the beachhead in Palestine and they built, uh, you see, there are no really good harbors on the Palestine coast. It's a good deal like the California coast uh, north of San Francisco. It's hard to, hard to land a ship. And um, Joppa, or Jaffa today, where John <coughs> began his voyage to Tarshish, Jaffa is too shallow for ships of any size to get near the shore. They anchor four or five miles out to sea, and people and freight are transferred to shore and back in barges or lighters. The Romans built up Caesarea as a seaport. It was their beachhead. Here they could land their legions, and uh, here they had their capital in Palestine. And um, the great mole or breakwater, which the Romans built, lies today in ruins in the water of the Mediterranean Sea and part of it along the shore at uh, Caesarea. There is practically no one living there but ruins of many large and fine buildings from the time of the Roman occupation at the time of Jesus and of the apostles. Now, it was at Caesarea that a discovery was made in 1961. A slab of stone from the Roman theater was found, which bears the name of Pontius Pilate and a part of the letters of the name of the Roman emperor Tiberius. Uh, presumably the theater, or at least possibly the theater, was built by Pilate and dedicated to Tiberius because of his eagerness to be known as a friend of Caesar or a supporter of the reigning emperor. There is much more archaeological work yet to be done at uh, the ruins of Caesarea. It was a very rugged coast, and the Mediterranean uh, was rough there and made it difficult to land ships in safety. And the Romans, however, built a fairly good port which was existing during their time. This gave them their entry and their base. And this was... Uh, of great importance, question 65 now, Caesarea was important to the Romans as a military base and as their capital in the land of Palestine. Uh, <clears throat> this uh, mole and breakwater which they built, or this great seawall, was a great feat of engineering for those times and it would be even today. And um, little of it remains, although you can still trace where it was, by the uh, sunken rocks and some of the outline along the shore. Many Roman foundations are found 
on the land at Caesarea. And here was where Cornelius um, had his office and back room, Cornelius, the uh, one to whom Peter preached, where Paul was held in prison for a time. Uh, some of the more prominent ruins at Caesarea are those left by the Crusaders, the Crusaders from France and Western Europe, but equally with the Romans, <clears throat> saw the advantage of this place as a beachhead to land their troops and tie up their ships. There was also a vast aqueduct, question 66, provided by the Romans, which brought water from many miles away, uh, some distant point or some distant spring. Uh, the storage tanks which provided the water have not yet been found, but somewhere surely the ruins or remains of these will be found. This was, of course, absolutely necessary for a large and busy city and an important military base that there be an adequate water supply. We realized that Pilate booked one for Jerusalem and used the um, temple funds for it. This would be comparable to if, um, let's say, the state of Pennsylvania would take uh, money given for the support of foreign mission work by some of the churches and uh, use it to build a uh, new airport at some Pennsylvania city or a piece of new highway or a bridge somewhere, let's say perhaps to repair and restore the Beaver Falls New Brighton Bridge and uh, take money that had been given to uh, Christian work for this. Naturally, this outraged the Jews. A further discovery in Jerusalem, uh, still more recent, is that of the uh, ruins under the Tower of Antonia slightly to the north of what had been the temple area and to the north of the present mosque or Dome of the Rock or Mosque of Omar. This was the headquarters of the Roman governor in Jerusalem. This would be the place where Paul stood on the stairs and made a speech and was later borne by the soldiers into the castle lest he be torn apart by the violence of this Jewish mob. There, deep underground, some 20 feet or so below the present-day surface of the streets, was found the pavement where Pilate sat to judge Jesus. One part of this is scored to give a grip to the horse's hooves, and there were funnels to drain away rainwater. And far back... Uh, Further back in the floor of a common hall, there were incisions on the stones where the soldiers played their games. These have been seen. There was a picture in one of the magazines of this. Uh, one game, it is not clear exactly what the game was, but uh, the Roman soldiers here played in their time off duty. This, uh, as Blakeoff remarks, is infinitely pathetic to see such marks of human frivolity in the very place where the drama of eternity was moving to its climax. This may also have been the place where the Roman soldiers mocked Jesus after he had been scourged, you recall, they put on him a purple robe and a crown of thorns and they smote him in the face and blindfolded him and prophesied 
uh, told him to prophesy who is it that smote thee, and so on. Very likely in this place further back, uh, underneath the what was the castle of Antonia, is the very place where Jesus was mocked and derided by the Roman soldiers. This brings us to the end of the study of Pontius Pilate and of the chapter in Plato's book on uh, archaeology and the death of Christ. We will stop there at this point for today and next time take up in Blakelock's book, chapter 6, Archaeology and the Resurrection of Christ.